Did I start this right? God damn it. What conditions are stipulations? Oh, yeah. Oh, actually, here, this is what I wanted to talk about. Um, so huh, this morning, as I was opening my eyes, so in that really tenuous place between sleep and wake, um, and they played a trailer on the Today Show for the new season of The Crown. And oh, yeah. Gillian, Gillian Anderson is playing Maggie Thatcher. And it's just, it's going to yield some weird, like, political sexual intersections in my mind. Because you're going to be horny for Mar Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. That's going to be great. I love that for you. Or it'll ruin Gillian Anderson, which God forbid, I think the more- No, Gillian gonna... Anderson's more powerful than she, that. Yeah, she can't be touched. Um, yeah. Even by Thatcher's legacy. So that'll be a weird journey to go on. Uh, uh, I haven't watched any of The Crown, so my mind will be completely pure. I haven't either. And it usual. snuck up on me in a trailer. Hi. That's rude. Mm -hmm. Rude. Well, you don't have to watch any of it. But I will, because she's so cute. So, this is, what is this? Exceedingly Persuasive. Okay. And I'm Brooke Rogers. I've been told I'm Mackenzie Brennan, but... By whom? Jury's still out on that one. Name 10. Speaking of juries, uh, kind of. Second day? Second, Second day of confirmation. We should say up top, uh, we're going to have, this is not mm -hmm. going to be, uh, this episode's not going to be mostly about the hearing. Honestly, because it's so rote. It's, it's yeah. just like performative. It's political theater at this point, which a lot of people say that about a lot of things. Um, but I tend to have a lot of faith in and respect for constitutional processes. So the sure. fact that, like I was studying for the bar during the Kavanaugh mm -hmm. confirmation hearings, and I found time to watch it because it was so abhorrent to me and it was such a huge momentous thing. But this time it's like, it's, it just seems like a sham. Like they're walking through a sham and for I me to feel that way is so weird. They're very similar procedure. in that they are both, they both feel like it's all theatrics at this point. Like I all the questions, yeah, all the questions are very much like everyone's getting their sound bites in all none of the answers are helpful to anyone who is concerned about uh judge amy coney barrett's potential decisions um because or the she, timing or the it. timing it, a lot of democratic senators have even said you know this is a sham and the uh they, they, yeah. they question the procedure and the timing but they really can't do anything about it um yeah they don't have um they don't have a majority yeah and it, it all falls to the senate because Senate has the advice and consent duty. Um, so unless they have enough people that they can stonewall, they really can't do much. And it, people have like spitballed some ideas about um, not providing a quorum to the Judiciary yeah. Committee or um, they could like, get, They could get creative for sure. They could, and but then does that turn more people against you in a time when I think Democrats tend to be held to a morality double standard a little bit? Yeah. Of like they do something that's, minorly distasteful and it 
it's like, oh my God, the disrespect on both sides sort of idea. I mean, maybe for centrists, but I feel like at this point, I think a lot of people would just respect that they had the backbone to try to do anything because our age group would, I think, but I think of like, um, my mom's generation who kind of turned away from the one party because of the lack of decorum and the disrespect. And then it's kind of like, well, both sides are bad, which I don't agree with per se, because I think there's a degree question, but um, I think it's a, you're, you're a little bit damned if you do damned, if you don't, if the other side is just like, what are you going to do, bitch? Um, And that's kind of where we are. But yeah, yeah, I haven't felt the need to watch because it's just performative, much like the impeachment thing. It's like everybody knows what's going to happen. We're just going through the motions, pretending like people's minds can be changed and like Democrats have a shot. I really don't think, I I mean, I think Republicans have the vote to, the votes to confirm her. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we're just going through the motions. They might be able to push it till after election day. But as we've already mentioned before on this podcast, we don't even know what that would mean. Um, yeah. to the process. We don't know if that would mean that she would uh, not be confirmed. We don't know what yeah, would we don't know what the vote will be. Yeah. Because if we had then, if we had a different president elected, there'd be the question of before inauguration versus after. Um, the set, uh, Republicans the could lose some Senate seats. There are uh, several that possible. are in danger and that could change the vote. So I think that in Democrats fact, do have a vested them. interest in um, trying to push it over the election just to see if they can switch up enough seats to fundamentally change the confirmation vote. For but sure. other than that, and I think as uh, you may have brought up before on the podcast, I know you mentioned it to me um, outside of the podcast, but um, then the question becomes, what is actually more useful to the Republicans? Because if they wait till after the election, they're risking losing seats, but then they can also use uh, the seat as leverage in the election of like, we need to yeah. get Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme hmm. Court, so you need to support Republicans and you need to support Like, Trump. it's not just about Trump anymore, th- yeah. and that kind of is a, I think, a good leverage tool uh, for both sides, honestly, because the same can be said of Democrats, that it's a, the first thing I thought when Ginsburg died was, oh my god, everybody vote. Like, yeah. please get off your ass, and I don't care about this lesser evil nonsense. Like, do it, just do it, and um, vote down the ballot. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, Martha McSally has a good chance of losing. She's the Republican senator up for not even re-election because she was appointed to fill John McCain's seat. She's never won an election, but she's the Arizona's second senator. And um, boy, she's she just has very little alliance with the truth. And um, uh, what's his name? Mark Kelly, the astronaut, is running against her and has been leading frequently enough that I feel good about it. And okay. uh, so that and McSally, work. we've mentioned this before, Lindsey Graham's seat is, has been in question yes. lately. Um, that's obviously a big one. A big I'm sorry, bet. do you mean Lady G's seat? The, Lady G? I will not. I will not have this conversation. <laughs> I refuse. Ooh, I want to know why later. Um, I'll tell you later. Ooh, okay. Uh, so maybe we can get to the substance because a couple people have reached out to me about this today. And I think it's something that a lot of people have noticed about uh, Amy Coney Barrett's hearings is that she has declined to answer a lot of issue-specific questions. And while I agree that it's kind of, (laughs) especially the more political an appointee is, and I think here, Trump is, we might have said this in past episodes, but Trump is the first president who has ever 
openly solicited and used a list from a partisan, um, like politically allied group. The Federal Society. Yeah, uh, who made a list of people who were jurists but were certain to vote uh, a particular way on a lot of issues, uh, those being, you know, the ACA, Obamacare, uh, abortion, gay marriage, things like that, that the Republican Party is really wanting to walk back. Yeah. But is, in many people's opinions, settled precedent. And it's not a coincidence that um, now is when Thomas and Alito have both uh, filed. Yeah, have both um, basically requested that Oberfeld, the same-sex marriage decision, be reconsidered. Yeah, and they wrote that that stinging dissent to uh, to I think it was a denial of cert or something, but it was a case that would have relitigated Obergefell, and both of them said that they they wanted to reconsider it and it was wrongly decided. So we have that obviously already on the court. It's been very very clear who uh, what the views are of the person who appointed this potential justice. And it is the first time, even as people have said that judges have gotten more partisan. And even though it's the least partisan branch, I believe, of the three, um, Trump is the first president to openly solicit and use a list of approved justices who have kind of committed in whatever sense, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but have been given to him as people who will vote a certain way. And I think that's a big part of why Trump won the last time, because it was tied to, you know, a commitment on these issues. So it's about as partisan as you can get. It, you know worth it to say that um, Barrett, during her confirmation hearings, uh, denied multiple times that she had committed to anyone that she would vote a certain way. Um, But I do think that um, her record and her her previously stated opinions on a lot of these issues uh, kind of point to how she'd vote. Yeah, she said that Roe was wrongly decided. She has um, made a lot of comments against homosexuality. And I don't know if she's commented specifically on Obergefell, but I know that she repeatedly has called orientation a preference in hearings and has actually been corrected for it because it implies a choice. So I actually, I don't think that that necessarily means that she would vote. I I think that a lot of people um, may use the term preference without thinking of it as... Yeah, I could see that. But she, I guess, kind of dug her heels in. She had trouble correcting for it when folks had called her out and asked that she use orientation, which is, I think, what you hear more in statutory settings because it does carry a little bit more of that immutable characteristic thing, which garners more constitutional protection for obvious reasons, because it's like something you can't change about yourself. Um, And that's an easier thing to say falls under something like equal protection or due process when it's something about yourself that you can't change. And so I think from the I, I definitely understand what you're saying because I honestly had not thought about the terminology too much. I think I yeah. say orientation because I hear it more, but I hadn't thought about the distinction until I read that. So I do understand kind of being locked into certain vernacular, but I think for somebody with this kind of record and approved as somebody who will vote a certain way on certain issues, um, and who knows if she committed verbally, I, I think there's so much like wiggle room in plausible deniability if you say that I never committed to anybody like what does that mean does that mean that you implied that you would say a certain thing or do a certain thing but you never straight out said it but there's a lot of kind of 
there is a lot of I think uh, plausible deniability. Yeah, I think that again, um, she has previously signed uh, a petition and uh, some kind of letter um, uh, condemning Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. She also uh, said that ACA was incorrectly decided. So her own, even if there isn't, and I, I, record, I, I have yeah. no reason not to believe her when she says that she has not committed behind closed doors. But that um, doesn't mean much to me. That's like, right. Yeah, sure. At this point, it's like, okay, Fine. but we have your record. We know, but we know what you're going to, yeah. <laughs> we know your opinions on this. And so that is, it's almost as qualifying in itself um, for, in my eyes, for a Supreme Court justice to, yeah. to uh, these huge precedents that um we already know her her uh, personal opinion yeah and one big thing that we won't get too into it but there there's actually a test test is kind of a a harder term than it is because it's applied subjectively obviously and it can be twisted if you want to but there's a test for when precedent should be overruled that the supreme court has established and some of the factors that you consider is like have societal views changed. And you think of mm-hmm. things like um, Plessy versus Ferguson being the, sure. the case that allowed for segregation, and then Brown v. Board being the one that overruled that and said separate but equal is not constitutional. We're overruling Plessy. Um, it's inherently unequal. And so you look at things like has society evolved? Has science or education or common knowledge about the topic at issue? Uh, has more of that come to light or has that changed? Right. Has Was it standards... 40 years ago when they wrote a, sure. an essay or a letter versus, you know, yeah. a couple years ago? So more like factual bases too. And then um, has the precedent that was in place proven to be unworkable? Have states not been able to apply that or has it been really unclear how to write laws or how to behave constitutionally? Um, has it yielded unintended consequences? And for things like gay marriage and abortion, if you're thinking about really applying that test in good faith, there's no way that you could justify overruling precedent. But she has said, Amy Coney Barrett specifically has said a lot about um, kind of playing fast and loose precedent. So it's, it's really concerning, especially when you know how much acrobatics would have to go on yeah. to to say that this precedent is unworkable. Yeah, um, and actually that this kind of brings up another now. point, um, what, what you were talking about, you know, if the opinion was held a long time ago, it yeah. does it does make a difference. Um, Amy Coney Barrett doesn't really, hasn't really had the opportunity to have a public opinion held a long time ago because she's 48 years old. And in fact, uh, all three of Trump's appointees to the Supreme Court happened very young. Uh, mm-hmm. No Gorsuch is 53 yes. and Brett Kavanaugh was 55. No that is useful because it means, because this is a lifelong uh, appointment, mm-hmm. it means they'll be, they'll be in their seats for a long time. So that is, um, that's a very uh, useful tool when picking. It's really scary. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a very pointed tool when picking justices. Um, again, and, and it kind of does raise the question of, are uh, lifelong appointments a good yeah, idea? Yeah, I do see that. Obviously, I'm I'm biased in the other direction now, given my job. But uh, just about the her declining to answer certain questions about issues that may come before the court. So my bottom line is that it's not that weird recently, but it is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's weird on general principle because it's something that has happened as appointees have gotten more political because it's kind of a way for appointees to dodge um, 
giving straight answers on things that people are obviously aware of their leanings on, people might be concerned about, but because they're for this one purpose going to maintain some illusion of neutrality, they're not going to address it. Um, and it's something that justices have only started doing within the past like 20 years or so. And like you listen to Ginsburg's hearing and she's asked about abortion and she says, I think women should have the right to choose yeah. uh, what they do with their body. And I think and that's that, something Kamala Harris brought up during her questioning yeah. of Barrett as well was she oh, said, good. you know, you keep saying that you can't, uh, you can't speak to how you will decide these cases, but in Ginsburg, during Ginsburg's confirmation mm -hmm. hearings, she was very vocal about her yeah. belief in women's right to choose. And she said so, that because she's like, the, the choice of when to start a family, how to start a family, um, control over pregnancy is something that is so vital to a woman's independence and women being able to succeed in this world and being seen as full human beings. So I think that, you know, that's something that should remain between it should definitely be considered as a huge factor in women having equal rights and should be something that's left between that woman and her medical professionals. Yeah, too. No, absolutely. That's instructive, I think, and I'm glad that Kamala Harris brought that up today that, yeah, that's very nice, but past appointees have answered it. And the other thing that I wanted to underscore, even though a lot of recent appointees have used that answer, none of the recent appointees fall in this partisan a climate, a circumstance, and personal context that even though you hear a lot about activist judges and even Scalia, obviously I was not a big fan of, of his views on a lot of things and how he interpreted the constitution. Um, even he did not have this kind of record going in of literal political activism on issues yeah. that are decided by the court and should not be subject to that sort of thing. I know that in our Ginsburg episode, we talked about how careful she was with making sure that the framework that she was laying was um, grounded in law, that it's not just opinion-based. It's not just, I want to do this because this is what I want to happen politically. It's finding a place in the constitution that guarantees this, really uh, like layering the precedent on top of, the precedents on top of one another. And it sounds like that's not really something that's taken into consideration here. It's just kind of playing fast and loose, so. Yeah, I think that it's it's very um, pointed, the fact that she, when, especially on issues where um, her personal opinion has been, has come into question about, and she has been vocal about it. Those mm -hmm. are the, those are the cases that she most frequently says, I can't speak to how I would Yeah, interesting, right? It kind of, it, you're answering the question <laughs> just by the selectivity of your use of that answer. So the majority of this episode, we're going to spend talking to Vanity Fair writer Caleb Akarma. He wrote an article on uh, journalist Maria Ressa, who is based in the Philippines in uh, August. And uh, Ressa is one of many journalists who have been the target of harassment, including legal harassment, from uh, Rodrigo Duterte's administration. Um, she is the CEO of Rappler and a groundbreaking and internationally recognized journalist. So we're going to have Caleb on to discuss uh, more about her work and suppression of freedom of speech and freedom of press in the Philippines. And she's been in the news a lot lately because of the escalating legal efforts against her and thus the international community and the human rights communities. I think the UN has been involved. A lot of 
those organizations and entities have come together to kind of publicize her plight and the risks to her life and freedom because it's very clear what President Duterte is trying to do. And Caleb will get more into this, obviously, but one thing that she talked about in the article that he wrote was noting how quickly things fell apart and fell into a press-suppressive structure of government, whether that be legislative, judicial, everything fell into place so quickly. And I think that the reason that we wanted to tie this in right now um, is probably becoming obvious that, uh, I mean, Trump has vocally supported Duterte's efforts to suppress the media. And this is a despot, uh, Duterte, that is. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Orville. Like your favorite. But uh, the risk is here, and obviously there are differences. The Philippines is a, a much newer country in terms of when they got their independence. I believe it was in the 40s. They have a different governmental structure. Obviously, there, there are differences. But, um, wow, this can happen within, like, half a generation, and you're seeing things like the judiciary there slowly fall into line, and then new legislative things being passed at the same time, and then when that comes before the courts, then the courts are already on your side. So it's kind of all these gears working together in the interest of checks and balances, and we have constitutionally protected uh, freedom of press. We have excellent speech laws for all of uh, America's, for all of America's sins. We have incredible protection of speech. And we do in the book. Yeah, it, which is good, but I do think that it's a bit of a cautionary tale to see how once you have, again, and maybe this is a good transition from our first conversation, especially once you have the courts who interpret your laws in the corner of the despotic press suppressive regime, um, the checks and balances can fall pretty quickly. And then it that spiral continues even faster when you don't have the media as an independent third party kind of playing referee and disseminating information to people about what they should be concerned about. Um, so I think that, that and, and we'll talk a little bit down the line about the distinctions and then the parallels between our system and theirs and our constitutional protections, what the real risks are and things like that. But I do think that Trump has pushed the constitutional envelope, we all know, on a lot of things, and now has a lot of the courts in his corner as well. Yeah. So Vanity Fair writer, Caleb Akarma. Caleb, can you just tell us a little bit about Ressa and what you guys talked about during your interview? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. So I I spoke to uh, Maria in July and This was uh, about a month after she had gone to a trial court in Manila and been declared guilty and, you know, was facing, is still facing up to six years in prison um, for violating this really obscure uh, cyber libel law that um, was kind of, you know, retroactively put in place to specifically target um, Ressa. Uh, so it's a very, you know, it's a very weird case and definitely one that's, um, you know, it's it's going to be like a staple, I guess, of what authoritarian regimes can do to target journalists who are explicitly working in like the digital medium. So, you know, essentially what happened was uh, her publication, The Rappler, which uh, she co-founded in 2012, and it was the other than like the main newspaper and the main news channel, 
um, in the Philippines. It's the biggest, you know, digital news outlet, and um, it's still relatively new. So it's um, one that is kind of, uh, I guess, like a renegade of an like a news outlet. They don't they don't really kind of abide to the same. Um, uh, you know, guidelines, I guess, or just they, they kind of, you know, are willing to go against the grain when there's a lot of outlets in the Philippines. I mean, and of course, in most countries um, that, you know, kind of go along with what the people in power kind of leak to them or tell them to do. Um, Did Rappler exist before Duterte or has their entire operation been since he came into power? No, they um they 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 started like right when Facebook was really taking off, uh, is when they when they got started. So that was 2012, and um, Duterte won in 2016. Okay, uh, okay. So they they had been around, uh, you know, a few years prior to his election, which was um, definitely one of the cra craziest moments in recent memory for me. Um, yeah, you know, I've been like my family's from the Philippines, and I have dual citizenship, so you know, I, it's it's always something that. I'm aware of like what's going on there and just if there's anything happening in the news that catches like international headlines and the Duterte, you know, when he was running for um, president, uh, he was going in and promising to uh, fill the Manila Bay with the blood of criminals and Oof. just running on like very overtly, you know, fascist and violent rhetoric that, uh, you know, is even shocking for a country that's dealt with, um, you know, decades of, of, authoritarian, you know, rule and dictators over the years. And so, you know, when, when they, this case actually even predates Duterte, but um, mm. the assumption, uh, which I would say is a safe bet, is that um, she was targeted in this specifically because of her, of her outlets reporting on Duterte. Because um, the case goes back to 2014 when um, uh, they had, the Rappler had published this um, article they were citing like a government report about a businessman and um, uh, the, you know, basically corrupt judges and businessmen, you know, being bad together. And um, that was sort of the gist of the article. And one of the business person, you know, mentioned in the article ended up suing them a couple of years after the fact. And, uh, you know, the, the lawsuit was initially thrown out, um, but it, it essentially was revived, you know, pretty, the lawsuit going back to um, 2014, but uh, it was revived, um, you know, during the, like in the last couple of years because of this uh, cyber law that had gotten passed. And the way that the cyber law works is that you can uh, sue somebody. It really like, you know, how Trump is always saying like, we're going to loosen the libel laws. Like uh, we're going to, you know, like that's kind of something that he sort of brings up all the time in his rallies. Uh, that's essentially what this, um, this law did is it makes like it makes it a lot easier to sue people if they write about you on online. So was this businessman well known or was he kind of because in a lot of these contexts there's a distinction between public figure and private what, what can be said about them online. So it's interesting if he's somebody who's well known and she's still held responsible for saying something about him online even though it's more likely to be in the public interest. Do you know? Um, the, the business, uh, man was pretty well known because, okay. um, you know, he, he, not only just because he's has kind of like a, um, I guess a high profile in a lot of, uh, you know, circles, uh, in, you know, like, uh, upper echelon circles in the Philippines, but also because the report that got 
you know, the lawsuit brought in the first place had mentioned him uh, while citing another report. So they were, they were actually like, this wasn't even something that oh. they themselves had like, broken. Right, um, right. And, and it was actually a researcher uh, who wrote the story. It wasn't even Ressa. Like, Ressa doesn't even have a byline on it or anything. Were, were she, they targeted in the lawsuit, or was it just Ressa? They were named, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yes, and Ressa was um, named at large. Yeah, okay. uh, the, the um, former Rappler reporter was uh, Ronaldo Santos, and uh, he, he was named, too, and he's, um, you know, facing charges as well. So, like, essentially, there's a typo in the article, and the article had been adjusted a couple years after the fact, after, after publication, when it started coming up in all these reports about, you know, the libel. And so they, uh, they corrected like a single, I think it's like a single comma or a single letter oh um, to fix it. And that, according to the eyes of the court, that was them publishing a new article. So it's this idea of continuous publication. Like so every time you update is, an article, then it's, it's a new article that you can then be sued for um, right. according to that new date. And this is a good thing that, that Brooke and I had talked about. So there's this principle called ex post facto, which is, Kind of, if you think about the Latin, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's um, after the fact. And in our judicial system, and really in, a, in most judicial systems around the world now, there is a prohibition on being held responsible for a crime based on a law that wasn't in existence when you committed the crime. So that essentially is exactly what happened here, but for that kind of like loophole of republishing because the cyber libel law obviously came out after the original article did. So boy, it's really lucky that, that they even had the republication, but I think it's- In the eyes of the plaintiff, it's, it's, it's lucky for, right. it's lucky for uh, well, I think his name's Wilfredo King. Like, yeah. uh, but he, it, the timeline is really, it's like the same year that they published the article uh, the Cybercrime Prevention Act, which is the the act in question that um, made it possible for him to file a lawsuit, that passed mm -hmm. later that same year. And then, like Caleb said, they were able to, uh, at first they were able to fight it off in court, it was thrown out, and then because of this very, like this technicality, basically, yeah. um, they were held to it. I actually, it's interesting because, you know, we're making all these comparisons between uh, our libel laws and the libel laws in the Philippines, but um, I actually don't know. It, it seems like not only is speech not protected in any kind of concrete way, but they're actively uh, they're actively eroding freedom of speech and freedom of press little by little with these laws and just in the, in the way they're targeting journalists in general. Because I know that there was this, there was the uh, cyber libel case. And then she, the a Rappler and Ressa personally were also facing a couple other uh, charges from the state, right? And I think that mm -hmm. Ressa said in an interview that she was um, under the impression that it was a uh, concerted uh, attack on Rappler specifically because basically the site in general was pissing off the Duterte administration. Yeah, um, and there's actually a very interesting reason for why they're pissing them off because as, as you know, these cases are evolving and like you're saying, there was, um, there's three types of cases in this whole situation with the Rappler and, and the uh, Philippine government. And the uh, first was foreign ownership or securities fraud. So that's like, uh, you can't have foreign investor, you know, control so much stake in a uh, publication that's domestic. It's because they don't want people being able to sway public opinion or whatever. It sounds good. Um, 
Yeah, it's definitely like good in nature, but um, this is one that they've rolled out a few times, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and making like very, very loose accusations. I, you know, I, some of it, uh, you know, it just seems like they're just doing a war of attrition just to, you know, mm-hmm. fuck with their heads because it's like, it goes so, just so long, like getting dragged out all these lawsuits, even if they're bullshit, that, that at a certain point, it's becomes exhausting you're racking up all this debt from all these you know you know lawsuits and although she does have um george clooney's foundation for justice uh she's one of the top human rights lawyers out there in a in international law sense so yeah and she personally defended her i think in one of the cases Amal and George, uh, she actually uh, references them as her uh, inspiration for um, kind of like being able to kind of stand in the pocket and take all the hits. And she went to, um, I I can't think it was like, so it was a Foundation for Justice dinner in New York. And she was like standing beside on a panel with um, other journalists who were like facing all, all sorts of horrible shit from authoritarian regimes or in failed states and stuff. And uh, she was like with a, I think it was an Egyptian journalist who was in prison for somewhere north of a couple of years or something. It was a really long time. And I think being in that setting, she, she mentioned that she's, I think the way she put it, she's like, I, I'm old, I'm already in my fifties, you know, uh, I know like who I am and what I've done. So as long as they're not going to go after the people who work for me and the, you know, very like the bravest editor thing that you could possibly say, mm-hmm. but she's like, as long yeah. as they don't go after my writers and they're going after me, then, you know, I'll take it. So, um, yeah. And it seems like I was, that was inspiring. The international community has kind of rallied behind her once they knew about the story, which is good. Cause now hopefully, hopefully she won't have to fall on her sword as much if she has some serious protection behind her. Uh, Brooke and I had been talking about, how sometimes you see that with things like the Nobel Prize, that once it comes to global attention that somebody's under threat by a domestic government, that you kind of, you see them garnering a lot of awards and interviews and publication focus as a signal from the international community to the domestic government that it's like, hey, we know this person exists and don't pay attention to them. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be a big deal if you do something. It is interesting to to give a little context to what we're talking about here about President Duterte and like his his past. Um, Hmm. Ressa actually, she's been obviously covering politics in in the Philippines for several decades uh, since the 80s, I think. Uh, but she interviewed him as when he was uh, mayor of Davao in, I think, 89. And at the time, that was um, the, her first interview with him. He admitted on the record to killing three people. And hey, she said that she was him. kind of taken aback by that. But um, when he was mayor of Davao, they, um, it, that's when the Davao death squads, um, which were understood to be acting on his orders, uh, groups of vigilantes were starting to um, take out, they were starting to murder suspected drug sellers and drug users and um, anyone who was suspected of petty crime, which of course, using suspected, uh, there was no due process, obviously, so it could be anyone, and no one was really held accountable. And he denied connection with the death squads for a really long time, but since then, in the past, like over the past five or six years, former officers who were on his police force in Davao, which is one of the uh, main, it's uh, I think 1.6 million people. It's I think the third largest metro area in the Philippines. So he had, he had, it was a pretty uh, influential. 
Oh, sorry. The, no, Davao is the uh, biggest city on the second biggest island. So uh, there's three, there's like three islands um, that make like the primary islands of the Philippines. And so Davao is the, the biggest of the southernmost island that, uh, you know, is, is kind of like marred in all sorts of really interesting and horrifying history. But his time there, like the word uh, DDS, Davao Death Squad, just pretty much became synonymous with um, Duterte. So it would almost be like it, people would say DDS and it would be like Duterte death squad because, mm-hmm. you know, you can just fill in the D right there and, you know, it's the same thing. <laughs> and so, what role uh, did he have in, in the government? He was mayor. He was the mayor. Mayor. Okay. That's a nice way to protect your city. <laughs> and, well, that's, um, like, that policy is like being used uh, since he's become president too. The the reason why Ressa... And Rappler started being criticized by him. He kind of flipped his rhetoric on them was because they started covering uh, the hmm. police's inconsistent number of deaths that at the hands of police. They were they weren't keeping records well, and it was like very obvious they were lying about it. Um, There's an obvious parallel there too to mm-hmm. to U.S. politics, and and just to underscore that this is somebody whose tactics Trump has uh, praised. Right, Caleb, I think you had mentioned specifically that he had praised his suppression of, of media and journalism. And his, yeah, his and, tactics, and right? you know, he, he, he had praised um, Duterte a bunch in all sorts of ways, which <laughs> is pretty funny considering uh, Duterte's relationship with uh, Barack Obama. Like in the last year, I guess, before Trump came into office, he, I think he called Barack Obama son of a whore or something, I want to say. Well, all right. Um, and uh, he, so he, he was like very uh, combative um, with Obama, but the, the Trump administration and Duterte, the regime, have had like a pretty solid relationship. Uh, their sort of mutual admiration for each other and the authoritarian, you know, tendency. Well, I mean, not even tendencies, just the authoritarian yeah. things that they do. Uh, you know, because the U.S. is also, you know, sort of uh, offering all sorts of major arms deals with the Philippine government. Right. Even during COVID, when uh, the Philippines was in complete lockdown, they were kind of pushing through this big arms deal for, uh, it was, I don't know the exact number, but it was several you know, millions of dollars worth of uh, attack helicopters and various uh, munitions and uh, arms uh, you know, across the board. And you sort of believe that these weapons are gonna be, of course, used against Filipinos. And so, natives, you know, yeah, right. And so, yeah, it, it's, you know, they two go hand in hand. They really, uh, you know, get along and have <laughs> expressed all sorts of, uh, you know, goodwill toward each other over the years. Well, it's also good to remember when you think of things like where does your tax money go? Yeah. And things like alliances and military funding that a lot of people dangle as some sort of emblem of patriotism. and you think about things like this, and that's where it's going, ultimately, to weaponize another authoritarian regime against its own people for things like journalism or just existing. So just to like contextualize it, Brooke, you had mentioned the maybe some differences between what the protections for speech and expression were in the Philippines to begin with. Uh, Caleb, do you know before the cyber libel law and kind of on the books versus how it's applied under Duterte, what's the baseline protection? Is there anything like the First Amendment that exists there? There is. Um, there is in theory. Um, and that was uh, put into place uh, following their, you know, the independence uh, with from the U.S. Uh, post-World like War 40s. II. Okay. 
which was, uh, you know, not really an independence. I mean, it was, it was just more so like turning the Philippines into a direct uh, vessel state to a client mm-hmm. state that like the U.S. can sort of control and extract, you know, resources, like uh, including yeah. that too. I mean, that's a major, that's a major point of contention um, with the South China Sea because the U.S. wants sort of a uh, Southeast Asia outpost that they can mm-hmm. watch over China with. But uh, the uh, cyber law stuff, um, you know, it, it was sort of reinforced after uh, the Marcos dictatorship in the 70s mm. um, when, he, when he stripped all those uh, protections from journalists and, you know, anyone who could dissent uh, toward his regime. And a main part of his, a main tenet of his, um, him declaring martial law was uh, taking away due process from, mm. uh, you know, anyone that, that they could point to and accuse of being a terrorist or a communist you know, two things that are sort of synonymous from under the Marcos regime and um, which was his whole reasoning for uh, declaring martial law was to go after, you know, the communist, the supposed communist terrorists who, you know, were, uh, they were actually staging like, you know, not to go too far into it, but they were staging like false flag uh, operations to make it seem like the communists were bombing the country and then thus giving them like credence to say, oh, this is really bad. what's happening, yeah. We have like you like know, crisis oh God, what are we going to do? Yeah, yeah. It's literally crisis actors. And the funniest, Wait, the what funniest year was thing that? is, is the uh, uh, this is uh, 1970, 71, okay. 72. Okay, so um, and and uh, what's really funny is uh, you know, crisis actors international, if you will, the CIA actually knew about hey, uh, uh, several of these um, uh, false flags. I don't, you know, you can't say whether or not they were involved, but. Given what else was going on around they the world, they had their hands pretty uh, dirty. Back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a lot of regime yeah, so they, change they going to... on at that yeah, time. Totally spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in and the effort of fighting communism, we are on board. Exactly. If that's the uh, the professor. Yeah, all you got to do is label it anti-communist, and we're yeah. We'll, we'll come in there and we'll supply you with weapons. So maybe we should rename the podcast and see if they get behind us. That's what we need. We need, yeah, Fighting we need uh, worldwide. support and branding from the CIA. <laughs> yes. That'll be great. <laughs> so, but just to kind of lay a, a foundation. So where were things left then after Marcos on the books, like officially, what was protected? Like, you know what the state of the laws were for free speech specifically? Um, yeah, there, there is a uh, special mandate, you know, so uh, like this uh, First Amendment specifically mm-hmm. mentions, you know, free press. They, they had something similar that was um, under the control, it was supposed to be under congressional control. And okay. so, uh, you know, they like, what they do is they have sort of like a, a licensing system for mm-hmm. uh, media operations that go through, um, you know, congressional approvals. And mm-hmm. the, so, you know, this kind of brings us back to the um, Duterte regime because something that Marcus did that um, changed the country and everyone knew that like, this is, like really bad is when he shut down ABS CBN, um, which is the biggest, you know, by far news channel in the Philippines. What has happened under Duterte is he actually, he stripped, we went through congressional approval and got it to strip ABS CBN of their license um, by not issuing them an approval through, you know, Congress. So Congress just went along with exactly what he wanted. So he didn't even have to declare martial law, which is um, the same thing that happened with the uh, anti-terrorist bill. Instead of him, you know, sort of, uh, you know, executive power stepping in and saying anyone who's anyone who we say is a terrorist is a terrorist and we can put them in jail as long as we want. Um, he actually got that into writing. And uh, this is what is the anti-terror bill that was 
in the process of being uh, signed and uh, pushed through at the same time that Aressa uh, was facing okay. all these charges and uh, being you know, sentenced in court. So the legislative branch was just kind of falling in line behind him, which is unfathomable yeah. in our and domestic context. But I even, think the big even more interesting than that is the uh, there's only three Supreme Court justices in the Philippines who were yeah. not appointed by Marcos. So the vast majority of justices um, were are his appointees. So yeah, it, it, it goes deep. I don't like that parallelism I don't all. like where that, we're going. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound good. Uh, and actually to expand a little more on that anti-terror law that you were talking about that got passed this summer, um, it does basically get rid of due process. So um, just to explain for like listeners at home who don't know what it is, it gets rid of due process almost entirely. You can, um, you can hold someone with no charges uh, for between, I think it's like two weeks and 24 days. Um, you can hold someone for uh, intention to destroy government property. You can hold someone for um, for thoughts, for like, like thinking about crimes. Yeah, uh, any any kind of indication that they are planning to organize um, to uh, disrupt the government proceedings or destroy property. There's also um, the probably the scariest part of it is that you can be arrested for um, inciting violence or inciting. Uh, basically inciting movements that are anti-government. So anything that is um, critical of the regime could potentially be... And that's a subjective word. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, we talk about all the time is that when laws like this are passed that are incredibly vague and um, it's so easy to prove, well, you know, even like going on a podcast or, um, you know, putting posters up or like if, if it's inciting others to... Uh, collectively move against the Duterte regime, it could be as little as like groups of people, groups of friends talking about protesting. It could be anything. There's so it's, it's such yeah. a broad um, law that covers so much and does completely strip away due process. But I think that like the the idea being that um, any group that shows any kind of dissent or um, objection to uh, the regime's actions or movements in the country can be completely stamped out and labeled as terrorists. That's the, I think that's just the because, greater purpose of it is yeah. almost uh, the rhetoric side, which is that you can just say anyone who um, is critical of us is a terrorist. That's and I think term. that, so we actually have a carve out for inciting speech in First Amendment jurisprudence in this country um, that there are fewer protections for speech that is seen as inciting violence, but the difference here, and then again, it all comes back to the courts because who's really enforcing this interpretation? Um, and you see that difficulty obviously in both places, hopefully on different scales, mm. but um, the, the level for something rising to inciting speech that isn't protected under First Amendment jurisprudence is very high. So it you have to really show that somebody actively said, go kill this person, for example, meant it, not in hyperbole. And that actually has been a big problem with applying it on the internet, because people will post a lot of things on Twitter, for example, that... Uh, Just shit sound, posters. Yeah. They can't arrest shit posters. They look and talk a lot like death threats, but um, the way that our interpretation of the First Amendment has gone is to not consider things that are hyperbolic and just like venting to be... Um, inciting words that don't deserve First Amendment protection without 
some sort of plus factor, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, some sort of indication that they were actually moving towards that at home, that they were preparing yeah. to do it, or um, that they, if it's inciting somebody else to do violence that they did, that they told them what weapon to use and when to do it and where to go. So you Very see, specific and yeah, obvious that they were planning to act on that. Exactly. Yeah. But that there's some room for interpretation with a word like inciting, and you can obviously see with the internet being kind of the final frontier for new um, new laws and, and new interpretation of laws, it can really tip either way. Yeah. And and then add judges to the mix. And Caleb, can you talk it? at all about, um, I know, because you know a little bit about more about the law than I do, but um, and, and the environment there. Um, can you talk at all about how the, the fears in the country about how that's going to be used, how the terror law is going to be used? Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Yeah, um, the, I mean, there's, pretty much every group uh, that you would assume would be terrified of something like this has uh, actually challenged the um, law in court. Um, But so there's 37 pending legal challenges to this anti-terrorism law, but they are legal challenges that are being taken up by the Supreme Court. So uh, (laughs) I would say that, you know, there's not a great chance that any of them are going to get a fair hearing, but um, you know, everyone from, uh, you know, people like just like uh, legal scholars uh, as uh, this, there is a former Supreme Court, uh, you know, justice who oh, was well, has kind of like taken up the case um, sort of in, in opposing it, um, as well as, uh, you know, people from minority religions, um, community leaders in Mindanao. And the thing about, you know, Mindanao is that it's the, uh, the you know, I would say somewhere between 90 to 95 percent of the country is Catholic. Um, but Mindanao is uh, um, the one island that has uh, sort of, I guess, the bulk of the Muslim population in the That's Philippines. That's one of the big islands, right? And the, yeah, it's the second, uh, it's the second biggest island. And um, so a lot of these, uh, you know, the concerns down there um, in, in the southern island, uh, Mindanao, is that they're going to be used, this law is going to be used to say that, um, you know, anyone who's a Muslim is a terrorist. Um, which, you know, would not be unprecedented in, uh, you know, world news whatsoever. But um, particularly with uh, the fact that there's um, a a Filipino-specific branch of Abu Sayyaf uh, based in Mindanao, and um, the government sort of cites them a lot for, you know, reasons to to sort of load up arms and uh, military, like, make the cities really militarized and... Um, there was like an international incident at a hotel uh, kidnapping that Abu Sayyaf did in 2017 that um, garnered a lot of headlines and gave them sort of free reign to go after whoever they wanted, um, who's a Muslim um, in that part of the country. And so uh, there's major concerns from, you know, those groups that this is, that's what's going to happen, as well as um, the indigenous people, who the tribes that um, live in Mindanao as well. And the... Um Specifically in Mindanao, that, that was the location of, you were, um, you were telling me about uh, the massacre that happened there. So they, they're actually, there's a very real and very recent memory of violence um, in that area. What, that was 2009, right? And it, it was Mindanao, is that, is that right? Yes, yeah, that was, um, that took place in Mindanao. It was in 2009, there was um, an election, it was, it was election day, and there was um, an incumbent who was sort of scared for his life. And so he um, asked, you know, dozens of members of the press to come 
and be with him and his family uh, and sort of follow their path to the ballot box so that they could, you know, sort of be shown that, okay, we're putting our ballots in, we're alive, everything's okay. Um, and the uh, incumbent family, which is sort of like a major family in Mindanao, they're sort of like a crime family, I would say, um, that are very involved in politics. And um, there was a son, uh, the, the uh, father was the incumbent governor, and the son was running for, um, actually, I believe the son was uh, incumbent mayor at the time. And um, they, as this, these challenging, the challenger family was sort of headed to the polls, they were stopped by, um, I think, over 100 um, men who, you know, were carrying um, uh, various NATO firearms. Uh, so it, they were carrying, like, um, M16s, M4s and stuff. And they you probably supplied just, them. Right. That's, that's definitely the implication um, over the years that's been taken is that, like, okay, these were definitely either American guns or they were just, they were Western guns, you know? Yeah. Um, because a lot of the, uh, the terrorists, actual terrorists in the country and, the um, you know actual uh, so the communist parties and stuff they all use Chinese made weapons um, mm. so there's a very there's a big distinction between uh, what yeah. weapon you choose and, and who you're allied to whether it's like the actual military or you're um, sort of part of an insurgent branch uh, and so that all these people got stopped um, I, I believe there was I think like 80 people or so involved in the caravan and 58 of them were killed oh including uh, 30 I want to say 34 journalists. Uh, were gunned down, um, and it, it was the single largest massacre of journalists uh, in history. Um, that yeah. like during that one incident, yeah. and uh, you know there was dozens of, of incidents of rape happening um, prior to the murders, and um, you know just as like bad as a massacre you know, in mm -hmm. modern times that you can possibly think of. You know, like that, these are international law violations yeah. that, you know, violate the right. Geneva Conventions and it, yeah. it's and UN level. to the risk that journalists face in that Certainly. area. Like, and that was 2009. That was so recent. Yeah. Which is, I was so surprised when I heard that. And that it kept um, going downhill right. after that, too, that it wasn't like the, yeah. you know, the warning people and needed. The fact that, um, you know, the, the, respons the responsible party were the people who were holding office at the time mm -hmm. because the, like the gunmen were all part of the, um, you know, this crime family. They were all part of the clan essentially. And, and so militias these, these were just too. Kind of, like their own death squads, you know, yeah. but they're government death squads. Oof. So they're using ah. you know, government weapons and, uh, you know, they have government jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. they know where everyone is and, um, you know, they, they pretty much have total control over, uh, over, you know, sort of a municipality and they're just, you have like lots of like, local dictators i would say like uh <laughs> dictators over small towns or big cities or because the philippines is so decentralized with being that there's so many islands that you get someone like a Duterte in there um he can kind of just make it his own country like make a city his mm -hmm. own country and then um have total control and no one's really going to step in and tell him you know that he has to stop or something so yeah. it's it's kind of similar to again or, or maybe a cautionary tale when you think about like the blurring of the line between um, government or state forces and militias made up of local angry civilians who are armed with military grade we like weaponry. Um, you definitely see a lot of parallels with that. And maybe that can yeah. be a transition to um, how we define domestic terrorism and and who actually and a, warrants that? Yeah, know, the subjectivity of, of that label. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and I think that, you know, especially bringing up militias, we've seen a lot more um, cases where the FBI recently has been Mm -hmm. um, stopping right-wing militias from... um, Kidnapping governors? Kidnapping governors. One of the many things that they apparently do with their free time. But just uh, from making moves in in the United States, it seems like there has been um, at least a rise in interest from quote-unquote militia groups, which are just like domestic terrorist groups that are calling themselves militias and for some reason the media just kind of picks that up and runs with it like, yeah, and it sure. gives it more validity <laughs> yeah but um that's been happening a lot more from the right in the u.s but uh instead the left is what's being from yes. uh, coming from the executive branch the left is what's being it's labeled misinterpretation on both sides terrorists. of the aisle in terms of application mm-hmm. and i think militia is specifically used because it's invoked in the second amendment so it's it's right. not only giving like kind of a guise of official context to it which applies anywhere but there's this added level of like no we are this organized force that's protected by the constitution and and weaponizing ourselves against the government when in reality they're just like trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer or right and we I mean, Northam. we saw this with you know earlier in May of this year President Trump threatened to designate Antifa as a terrorist mm-hmm. a domestic terrorist on the other side of the aisle. And that, I think, goes to show you the difference in reaction between, mm-hmm. so when it's right-wing groups who are actively arming themselves and calling themselves militias, that is the, that is the branding, yeah, that's sure. the rhetoric that the media allows to go forward. Whereas um, when Antifa, which is not even an organization, it's an umbrella term for yeah. left-wing activists who it's not any kind of organized structure, um, there's a move by the government to label a left-wing organization that has not even armed itself in any kind of real sense. No. A domestic terrorist. It not even organized itself. Yeah, I think that that... There, there, are, there have been um, lots of um, sort of like uh, uh, left, I, I don't know if you'd say, I would guess anti-racist militia is probably the better term um, mm. that have kind of popped up. Um, I mean, they've been around for forever, but uh, lots of them have grown a lot like a Not Fucking Around Caucus, I think it's called. <laughs> Uh, Where's that? Have you heard about this? Uh, no. It's a group. It's a group of um, it's like hundreds of armed uh, black uh, Americans who all have you know the sort of the same weapons that you see at these uh, you know right wing rallies and stuff mm-hmm. where you know they'll have um, you know duty rifle grade uh, AR-15s and they'll just march through. There was a, there was a whole thing uh, on Stone Mountain uh, mm. outside of Atlanta, Georgia, where there was uh, a black militia group, you know, marching through sort of just kind of like as a show of force. And given that, you know, of course, Stone Mountain is a, you know, Confederate symbol that people are really worried, you know, I guess racists are really worried that will get taken down. Um, So they were kind of like, uh, you know, staking their claim on it. This Um, is like Northern Ireland. This is what they did in Northern (laughs) Ireland. It's just like people dressing up in their group's colors and parading through the opposition's territory with their own weaponry doesn't make it any more peaceful god damn it yeah but i think that if you're living in fear of violence from a group like a, you know a, a right-wing white supremacy group showing that you have the capacity to defend yourself is probably the most rational response I get its rationality. I just don't know about its effectiveness. The way that I see this going is like Northern Ireland, that everybody just starts to arm themselves more and there's no check on the violence and it just kind of 
gets to be two armed groups against one another. There actually is an ongoing case study in this exact uh, situation happening in the Philippines right now mm. um, with uh, the, the, actually, I believe it's the longest running communist insurgency in the, in the world. Is you define the, the run of an insurgency. Uh, it's, uh, it's like the, they're under the same name, the same people, the same organized group uh, okay. going back to the 60s. Um, huh. um, a lot of these people who fought against the Japanese in the Philippines formed, uh, the, you know, the then communist uh, party. And they formed a, a militant wing of that party, which is the um, New People's Army. And that has like several breakout groups within it. And one of them is really interesting. It's uh, a Christians for uh, National Liberation which is a Protestant and Catholic joint, like armed militia group with, uh, uh, they follow like, they follow their uh, sort of their own strand of um, uh, liberation theology from like the second Vatican council. Um, well, don't tell them about of, Northern Ireland because they'll just split. <laughs> that, <laughs> the middle. No, I, I'm sure, I'm sure they would uh, get along with, you know, some of those people, but, uh, but uh, it's, so there's a lot of the stuff that Duterte has done and what Marcos did has been to target this, um, insurgency that just won't go away because they've mm -hmm. tried everything and um, like due to the terrain of the Philippines um, similar to like Afghanistan or you know invading Russia in the winter it's, it's just like you, it's an unwinnable battle you can't Home turf like, advantage sort of thing exactly yeah, there. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's an impossible uh, task and um, they know the land so well because like this is their indigenous land a lot of the times because um, a lot of the, you know, uh, communist uh, militants are actually um, defending the tribal land that they, you know, their family is from. And they yeah. um, actually control these areas completely. They have completely autonomous regions throughout. I think they have 120 areas that they control um, wow. either de facto or just they actually, you know, completely control. And they'll have like their um, various stages of uh their, their, their militaries where they have like people who are always um, sort of in the NPA and then they have, um, I guess, sleeper cells, uh, people okay. who have like, it's like, uh, there's, uh, there's this Filipino rapper um, who has an album called uh, One Rifle Per Family. And that's kind of like the policy that they follow is that like every family that is within like this apparatus of uh, the communist party, um, which is the National Democratic Front is the sort of coalition name for it. Um, they all kind of like, our lookouts and uh, just kind of have like this secret society almost like mm. living underground, um, even as they're like a state department designated terrorist organization. So which gives them anyone in the world free reign to go over there and like kill them all. But you know, it they sounds like they it. at least <laughs> have governance down, like, cause the difference that I would see there and, and there are differences and similarities, but it, at least just by nature of the beast, it sounds like they have governance, um, down to a science like they know the it's other elements. organized structure yeah right that aren't just the the shows of force and arming in the interest of showing force that it's like you know we have all the elements under our control and we do know how to to govern the land that we're in control of but i that being said i also don't know that that level of you know being so hyper aware all the time that you need a rifle per family and that you are designated as a terrorist organization, um, which are kind of things that fall into different control. One is the, you know, the fault of the Duterte regime, but mm. um, that's not the ideal state. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I ideally mean, they'd, yeah, I think ideally they'd No, but the rifle per family more. thing, like, 
freedom like, under even the... that level of, of kind of militant um, rogue existence, mm. I think is, that's what scares me. It's, it feels very dystopian that if we have both sides arming themselves and then that just becomes the society, it feels like a, a step down in terms of quality of life. <laughs> well, I, guess, I don't think anything like that would ever happen in America. I mean, like, Ooh. just go outside, go, go outside anywhere in America and just look around you. Like, I'm sorry, but like the Americans for the most part just don't have what it takes to, <laughs> to live in the jungle and to like, they love open carrying, but like when the shit hits, the, I mean, I'm from South Carolina, like I, I love me some guns too, but when, you know, things, it actually comes down to it. Like right. uh, Americans would never have like the, uh, the, I, I, I guess it, it's bravery or it's whatever the, true. to, to actually like, true. like do something that they care about or whatever. They don't have the backbone. So, they don't have the commitment. Yeah, they don't have the, the drive. <laughs> well, actually, I actually want to bring it back to something because the New People's Army, aren't they one of the groups that um, human rights activists are worried will be targeted through the anti-terror law? Like the, specifically, mm -hmm. they're worried that, uh, yeah, the, new, the uh, new People's Army will be kind of crushed through this law? Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, not just not just the people who are actually, you know, taking up the arms, but also um, there's there's a youth wing in the New People's Army, um, well, in the um, uh, National Democratic Front, which uh, has, you know, people all over the world, because like the, like the Philippines, and one of the main reasons why um, this insurgency has gone on so long is because um, the Philippines, I think, I believe it has the highest rate of migration of any country in the world. Oh, um, yeah. Because, because okay. what, what happens um, with, you know, it's sort of you see in uh, Vietnam where it's kind of like a client state of Western countries where mm -hmm. we use like essentially slave labor in Vietnam to get, you know, the clothes, fast fashion, whatever we want for super cheap. Right. Yeah. And um, in the Philippines, what the, the thing that gets exported is not just like the material resources, but also the actual people, huh. because um, there's all these like horrible schemes that uh, get run, especially in areas like Baltimore and Texas and all over the, the United States and Canada where they trick um, Filipinos to come to America promising all these jobs and stuff and then um, lock them into like these insane contracts where they have to like give away essentially all of their salary to whoever it is that like brought them over. Um, essentially human trafficking, right? I was just saying, it's, it's it, human yeah, trafficking. Like, they, have to, they have to live in like, of, um, their dorms and it's it's very it's very um you know uh, predatory and abusive and you know horrible um, because there's just so it sounds like it, it that's i mean that's really what it comes down to yeah. um and it's it's been going on for you know decades and decades and that's why there's so many filipino nurses and uh so many filipinos working in the school system and in lots of public spaces all across america Interesting. um is because there's we don't have the i guess there just isn't enough um I don't know what it is. Americans who will take uh, like so little money to do jobs that are that hard or mm -hmm. like what the exact well, issue is that there's a lot of these areas. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a lot like of these a areas professional like, degree program. Mm -hmm. So it's like and who pays for the schooling in those circumstances? Uh, most of them um, have like sort of like some base level of education um, in the, to begin with terrible. or, or they'll get trapped into like a, you know, predatory loan thing where they're, you know, doing some sort of um, trade program or whatever to be able to do the job they want. And then that just like further, you know, pushes them into this, uh, you know, unending contract of them constantly paying somebody.
So, um, you know, just, uh, for those for those reasons, it's it's kind of become um, such a big issue in like the diaspora community mm -hmm. um, of uh, you know sort of like wanting to have the land that um, was lost to colonization or lost to all these different fascist dictatorships that have you know sprung up over the years, and so um, you know there's it's I guess they it's like they've already seen what the dystopia like looks <laughs> like. And um, I, it, it, it's similar to, I think, what, uh, you know, the Kurds in Syria do in, in Rojava, where, um, you know, it's, of course, it would be sort of easier, I guess, in theory to, like, get along, as long as they don't, you know, genocide you, um, to sort of go along to get along. But right. um, at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to have your land, you're not going to have um, your community, you won't be yeah. able to speak in your native languages. Um, so you'll lose all your culture and history. Plus you the don't genocide risk, to, so... Yeah. What do you have? Yeah, and huge careful. genocide risk, yeah. So is the, um, you talk about the youth movement and the New People's Army, are they sort of, is that sort of one of their main issues? Um, yes, yeah, that's that's like a huge issue because uh, the diaspora is spread out all over the world. So um, you'll have um, lots of the uh, people who are involved in the youth wing um, doing whatever they can as far like it was sending money or, you know, uh, just like keeping up with their family and, mm -hmm. Um, like making sure other people that like connecting people who can't get together because of like, you know, being some of them are so remote that, sure. you know, they don't really know what's going on. So, um, so you have like, you have the youth wing that's getting, that's, you know, sort of consistently involved um, as well as, you know, all these other arms. And um, the, what the like concern is, is that if, you know, the, the territory regime now has this uh, anti-terrorism bill, they can, like say whoever they want is a terrorist and and anyone is a terrorist if they're like even remotely connected to the new, the new people's army or to the communist party or to any of these groups. So um, there's already been cases of, uh, you know, Filipino uh, regimes sending like, uh, I guess, hitmen to America to take out like labor leaders and, oh um, you know, people who are involved in sort of just international leftist movements. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's also like a really big concern with the anti-terrorism bill is like, you know, if the State Department's on your side, you know, who's, no one's going to be against you. And like, look who's yeah. in, in our our executive office, that if the country that you're sending the hitmen to is kind of cooperative and kind of likes your end goal, um, that doesn't leave a whole lot of options for mm. international enforcement in either place. Yeah. So, Brooke, do you want to talk a little bit about um, just like the labeling of terrorist groups and communist groups in our own? Yeah, so we sort of talked about um, the Trump administration's threat to label Antifa a terrorist organization. And I think that um, that has been consistent with their rhetoric in general toward left wing groups, which is that... Um, the danger to the average voters um, property and quality of life is not coming from these right-wing militias that are planning kidnappings and um and uh general terror but it's coming same with from, charlottesville i mean that was yeah the, the the danger is not coming from the right it's coming from the left it's coming from black lives foreign. matter protesters or um in the uh in the case of the uh USCIS guidelines, which um, I you, I didn't realize this. You mentioned this earlier. Um, is actually a revival of it sounds like Cold War era 
guidelines that prevent anyone seeking lawful residence in the U.S. Um, from becoming citizens if they have an affiliation with a communist group or um, it, it, the language is so vague that it could be used for anyone who um, even, even associated Dissenting. with any kind of organized left-wing group. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's part of a greater movement from this administration uh, to demonize the left and left-wing activists in general. And also I think to divert attention from uh, right yeah. and terrorism. And I think xenophobia as well plays a, a not insignificant role. But one of the things that I just marvel at at using communism now, which mm. you do hear, and you hear it even in less formal contexts, because I think I might have even mentioned in a past episode that when I was back in Arizona during quarantine, watching the political ads there, um, Martha McSally was going after the Senate candidate, Mark Kelly, with like, he, uh, he went to space and the space station was paid for by China, which is a communist country. And it's like... Uh, as the campaign's gone on, it's clear that that's a talking point that they're really going to work on. He went to uh, space and he came back a commie. Like, yeah. He went to he, communist space. Yes, communist space, um, because China's up there doing their crazy communist stuff. But, like, obviously there's a parallel here to McCarthyism, which I think is the last, um, arguably the last big, you know, successful political movement to repress speech and political expression that was allied with a certain group. And obviously that was reined in, and I think that's good, and I think it's a, a good sign. Um, but in terms of just like blacklisting people for allegations and finger pointing and alliance with a certain group, but at least, and as I said to Brooke yesterday, I will never ever die on the hill of defending McCarthy. I hate McCarthy. But, just kidding. But, but. <laughs> At least that was proximate to the Cold War. Now, yeah. when you talk about anti-communist sympathy, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? Trump loves Russia, and Russia loves Trump, and that's probably the, you know, the one of two big communist powers in the world right now, and China being the other one, and he hasn't really been that hard on them for their political and human rights abuses. Oh, no, he has. Think about the way that he's framed the coronavirus. He's yeah, that's framed definitely, it as he's the doing Chinese everything virus. wrong. I know. So he's just he's using the racism part of being anti-China, but like you could at least connect anti-communist sympathy to a greater context and and like a an arms race, nuclear war threat sort of thing in the McCarthy era, which is how the alarmism was allowed to spread so so effectively. Yeah. But um, now when you hear that sort of thing, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? But it works. I mean, obviously. Yeah, especially when it's part of a, 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 an active effort yeah. coming from the executive branch. But also, I mean, think about how uh, like senators like Ted Cruz or Lindsey Graham, any kind of right-wing politician that is, has a lot of public time, they're going to be talking about the communist set. They're going to be painting yeah. Joe Biden, who is That's like- a real platform this term. A yeah. moderate as a socialist- because, and that's what, the whole thing with, um, with Bernie, when, mm -hmm. um, when Bernie was RIP, when he, it looked like he was going to take the nomination oh, this earlier year? this year. this fucking year. A lot of moderates in the, in the Democratic Party were saying, well, you know, if he gets the nomination, the rhetoric against him is going to be that he's a socialist. 
but it's still they use is, that man. against yeah. Brian. Like they I use know. it against the, someone who's like oh. basically right of center, and so and they're going to use that against debate. anyone. Yeah, the number of times they mentioned Ilhan Omar. And they said, like, oh, this this socialist communist Ilhan Omar loves Mark Kelly. It's, I mean, it's just, it's a dog whistle. But yeah. not even that, because at least that has a concerted goal. Um, Marxist-style, Lenin-style, communist-esque yes. Marxist, yeah. if you will. Yeah. I'm sorry, how did, um, how did space tie into the McSally thing? I'm kind of confused about that. So Mark Kelly is an astronaut. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's still a reach because what I don't I don't know. And we did at least mention this at the top of the episode that that's one of the Senate seats that knock on wood um, is susceptible to fall to the left. Um, I heard he yeah. was going up there to change the name of the ISS to the International Stalin Station. Ooh. Something to think about. Are you McSally's copywriting? You're very good. Yeah, he got to you. No, and I even heard in the debate between the two of them that McConnell uh, sent out a memo that said, like, this is what we're going to work on with Mark Kelly. So because it's, like, they don't have anything order. else. Like, obviously, they did oppo on him, and they were, like, nothing. There's nothing yeah, coming out. I mean, how, how do you run against an astronaut? Everybody loves astronauts. They are truly the bipartisan hero. Like, who doesn't love an astronaut? I love like, all of them. How can you be anti-astronaut? Even when I'm hearing, she's like, I bet he brought a communist banner to space from China. <laughs> And that, like, that is something that she said multiple times in the debate. What the fuck are you talking about, lady? You are that's insane. the only talking point that, like, that's, but the thing is, it works. You that's repeat it? communist and socialist enough, and there are voters who have been so trained to yeah, freak out at those words yeah. that they will listen to you. And that's, that's, again, that's a tactic they're using against Biden and Harris. They'll use it against anyone who's, like, even, like, barely left of center, they're going to call them communists. They're going to call them socialists. And that's like, again, with Antifa and with the guidelines that they're reviving, it's all part of a concerted effort. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and I think, I think it's going to get worse, especially if Trump gets reelected. Oh, and I, I feel state. like this has been going on for um, years. I mean, it's been going on for the end of time. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's probably, particularly in the past, like, four years under Trump. I mean, like, I, I was at CPAC this year. Um, and... Uh, they actually like the whole point of CPAC this year was like red scare. Like See? everything okay. was about like socialists taking over. And uh, of course, I mean, RNC was like the same way. And the funny thing about CPAC is they, uh, they invited uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro uh, to get <gasps> back to like international fascism. Who I think of um, in, in Duterte's league, except probably a little more bumbling. Well, the funny thing about Eduardo he's gotten COVID more Bolsonaro times too. He's like the, uh, he's the big Don Jr. of um, Brazil because like Jr., uh, like he's, he's like the dictator's son, right? But like, oh, we should the, say who the... Bolsonaro is, I guess. Okay. I, well, uh, Jair Bolsonaro is, um, or Jair Bolsonaro is the uh, actual fascist leader. And then his son is Eduardo, who is um, a okay. PM. Uh, and he uh, is just kind of like, I don't know, just kind of an international idiot. He just like sends him abroad to like go and get like speeches and like talk about how like he, one of his actual quotes is like communism is worse than Nazism and had some line about like, uh, I, there was like Hitler got mentioned at some point in that and he was like on the side, like I, I, I get ish, you know, like against communism, you know, God forbid. But, it's um, good to know uh, that uh, fail son is an international phenomenon. Truly, like everybody's got every every son. Every country has a fail. Who son. run the world? <laughs> it's, it's 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 one of the last jobs you can get in this world. 
I, um, I wish I could get that job. God damn. It's the it's only non-gig economy job remaining. Really? Unfortunately. Oh. Great healthcare um, benefits I've heard but, too. Truly. <laughs> the one thing the that was funny about that is because like when he was at CPAC, he um, was like t- having a rally-ish, like an actual fascist rally with Corey Stewart, who's a neo-Confederate candidate who ran for uh, a Virginia Senate seat in 2018. And um, I mean, like, Corey Stewart was just straight up Confederate as can be, you know. Uh, he had like white nationalist guys in his entourage. Like he had private security who were like um, part of this, uh, like uh, I, I, the South will rise again group. I guess mm. was the, the quickest way I could sum it up. But um, he, oh, like, nice. I, I was yeah. going to like cover this rally, and like Eduardo Bolsonaro actually like singled me out by name, and I got thrown out of the rally, and he was like taunting me on my way out why it was like, like by caleb and his very like affected accent sorry why why you <laughs> uh, well, yeah well apparently someone had like alerted them that um i, I, I assume it goes back to this gorka incident and which i don't have to get into but caleb has a long and sorted history gorka. with cpac uh, I, don't you have yeah. a lifetime ban now you're not allowed back at cpac no. right I'm, I do have a lifetime ban, and I actually did not even get a press pass this time. I just, like, showed up because I was like, I just want to go to this one thing. And then I couldn't even, you know, get a pass in there. And then I, get, I got dragged out. Can we do, like, a out. montage and put you in a disguise next time? And kind of have, like, a wacky... <laughs> I, we're going to make it for you the next CPAC. I could, I could become, like, a uh, journalism fedora guy. Yeah. You know, like, a little press card. Oh, you would fit right the, in. That would be hat. perfect. They'd love that. Yeah. I think it'd be a great look. Linen suit. Um... Yeah, it, it, the, it, but, uh, you know, it's crazy how, like, it's just this global march of um, anti-communism, but there's no communism to, like, march against. Right, exactly, you know, and that's what it, throws it's so, me. People are dumb. <laughs> it, it's incredible, it's but obviously it works because they've, they've like, kept it up yeah. for the RNC, and they're, you know, running on it actively, so. Um, I think it's the terrorism you know. parallel, and Brooke and I had talked about this a little bit, that while there's not the active communist threat that there was mm. when this first reared its ugly head, um, there is the the recent reality of terrorist threats. And I think that that's the buzzword that people are responding to now. Right. And so communism is just the one of many labels that can be put on it. Whereas, um, you know, you also hear with the uh, the Muslim ban. It, mm-hmm. You can put the religion label on it. You can put the nationality label on it. You can put communism as a label now. But as long as there's terrorism as this buzzword label, yeah, um, no holds barred. I mean, the Patriot Act, obviously, being the first sorted venture into compromising constitutional rights, under yeah. the, the IUMF and a lot of yeah. a lot of movements against like we must um, protect now so and... people jumping in um namely you know Dick Cheney Rumsfeld at the time being like this is the perfect time to get yeah. rid of uh due process and habeas corpus protections and yeah so it's almost a perfect storm of getting combined that what uh, what we've been trained to fear in like in the yeah. war terror with how we're a nice marriage of yeah how we're being trained to fear socialism and communism Bush terror era yeah yeah so uh i don't know let's wrap it up on that optimistic <laughs> note i guess <laughs> yeah careful, i think guys. we're pretty much touched on everything falling. yeah oh everything is just all the time it's i know great. everybody's real pissed about the whole like stop telling me to vote things please vote though 
Um, especially if you're in a swing state, because... Uh, yeah, we live in New York City. Our vote doesn't mean shit. Hey, no, <laughs> I'm registered. I am registered in Arizona. So, um, oh yeah, you you actually count. That's I count great. a lot. I'm still gonna vote, but it doesn't. It literally means nothing. Yeah, make a point of it. Yeah, it's, it's good. Fine. Um. Anyway, you're not gonna do the just submit the empty ballot. The the old libertarian move. You just I, like, I, I libert- voted, but I just you know I. I I libertarian phase of my libertarianism oh my is behind me. I'm no longer voting third party or writing people in. That's, that's my that's the Gen X. That's the signature Gen X vote. It is. is. Truly. Just, just like like man politics, you know? It sucks. They're both I'm the same. Sounding party. brilliant, Jen. Howie <laughs> Hawkins. That's what I'm voting for this year. Well, uh, it's, I mean, a this Simpson, is... it's a Simpsons episode where they takes off the masks of the two candidates and they're like both aliens, you know. Oh, it turns out because like they're both the same people, and uh, oh, you know, uh, ever since ever since that, like I don't say that like out loud. Become, it, it's become like a thing where people. I mean, less so now, but I think for like old older millennials and Gen Xers, that was a huge thing yeah. of just being like Last completely election apathetic. cycle, certainly, and hopefully they learned their lesson that you know moral absolutism is not going to fly. And like I have said before, the government is not going to come knocking on your door and be like, hey, I noticed that you didn't vote for one of the viable candidates. Like, is there anything we can do to help you out and make your voice heard? Like, no, nobody cares. Nobody's hearing you. It just means that you're canceling out one vote for the lesser evil. So And this has been McKenzie Soapbox. Thank you for joining us. All right, Kayla, do you want to plug your socials and stuff? Where Mm -hmm. where can people find you on the internet? Your socials. Yeah, just uh, my name, you know, on all Spell platforms. Spell baby. There we go. C-A-L-E-B-E-C-A-R-M-A. Um, yeah, just, uh, you actually, you know what? Uh, you sh- What you should do is Google my name and Seb Gorka. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it. we didn't that's even get to the Gorka the stuff. But you, it's better, that that's better now. if it's a surprise. I think it's, it, it truly is, like, that's the Easter egg that people can go find. A little after-dinner treat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's my only plug, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a worthy that's reputation to leave. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, all right, okay. Brooke, baby, what's yours? Oh, uh, BKE Rogers on Twitter, Brooke Angeline on Instagram. Uh, DM us questions about – we got some questions about the hearing, which I think we answered, but um, if you have any other – questions about what we talked about or future episode stuff yeah um obviously there's a lot going on right now so no we're, sh- what we're picking huh, huh, hop on in kids um we're picking our favorite tragedies and um that can be haphazard but please weigh in on what you want to hear us cry about yeah. um and i'm what am i mkz joy brendan on instagram and i'm get me to a nunnery on twitter but the two is the number two. Hopefully so, people have, yeah, hopefully they can hey, they, they figure that out by now. Now it's just muscle memory. <laughs> I gotta say it. All right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Kayla. We really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so it. much for being here. It was great. Um, yeah. Good cautionary tale. Thanks so much too. for having me. I'm on the lookout.